This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. We got a wild one this morning. It's six minutes past nine o'clock here in Western North Carolina. Welcome to a Thursday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. Uh, look, um, I knew last night when Nick Saban announced his retirement, right about when the evening news was going on, that uh, we were going to have a lot to talk about this morning. What I was not counting on, was less than 12 hours later news breaking that Bill Belichick is out in New England. It has uh, officially it had well they haven't had the official announcement yet uh, but they are they're going to have a news conference later on today to announce uh, the parting of the ways. It's both a surprise and not a surprise. I mean it's been talked about for a while that this was likely to happen. As I said on the show yesterday before we had our uh, – my neighbor had the little emergency. By the way, everything's fine. Uh, but uh, I appreciate your patience with me having a bailout. I guess it's one of the hazards of uh, doing this from your home. Uh, but anyway, um, I said yesterday before that that if the Patriots were going to make the move from Bill Belichick, uh, bringing in a guy like Mike Vrabel was a no-brainer, and it would be the perfect segue from one to the other. Now – they can't even interview anybody in person for a couple of weeks till after the divisional round of the playoffs. So uh, obviously, there's not going to be any hirings or, or talks of who or you know who's who's interviewing yet. But uh, it is uh, it is going to be fascinating. Twenty four years with the New England Patriots, but the last uh, four years have been rough. They've missed the playoffs three out of the last four years. Uh, and, and, you know, having not having Tom Brady there was part of the problem. Injuries played a big role in that. Um, the disappointment, I guess you would say, of Mac Jones. But when you look at, you know, the personnel around Mac Jones and some of the decisions Belichick made in terms of the draft, in terms of free agent signings, uh, maybe he wasn't given a fair shake. What will be fascinating is to see what the Patriots decide to do in terms of hiring a general manager, then a head coach, then what do they do in the draft? Would a new coach want to say, hey, let's ride this out with Mac Jones. Let's grab a quarterback late in you know, the draft or later in the draft, maybe in the second round, get a guy like Bo Nix who may very well fall to the second round of the draft, the kid out of Oregon. Uh, and if they have an opportunity, it may depend on what happens with the first two picks, but if they have an opportunity and you're the Patriots and you've got a new GM and you've got a new coach, 
Do you go quarterback or do you go Marvin Harrison Jr.? Get yourself a franchise-type wide receiver. I think if if Belichick was there, I think it'd be a. I think quarterback was a foregone conclusion. I wonder if it will be different now with him no longer at the helm. By the way, we're going to have Dan Zampano on tomorrow, as we do every Friday. And, man, are we going to have a lot to talk about. We thought we were just going to be talking about the NFL playoffs. But now with uh, Belichick being out, uh, and, uh, you know, we'll see. Look, and look, Bill's 15 wins away from the NFL record for most wins as a head coach. He is not going to ride off into the sunset. He is going to coach again. The only question is where. I'm of a mind that Washington makes some sense. They would love a guy like that. They have, you know, they have a few places and few pieces in place. They have some draft capital coming up. They have an opportunity to rebuild that team. The question will be whether Washington is going to hand the GM reins over. To Belichick, I would I would suggest that no team do that. <laughs> and, and look, let Bill coach. Let you know, say to him, look, Bill, you know, let us handle this part. We need you to coach. You're one of the best coaches in the history of this game. Coach, let us worry about the rest of it. We've given you some some good pieces to play with. We'll get you the uh, the complimentary stuff you need. Give us an idea of what you'd like, and let us find the right people. You know, now, you know, I think that uh, I think that makes sense. He's got ties to the area. Obviously, his dad, the, the uh, coach at the Naval Academies, you know, and so he kind of cut his teeth in that area. So it makes sense. The issue for Belichick is he's 71 years old. How long is he going to coach? Right? I mean, you know, the clock is ticking. Let's say he coaches till he's 75. So he's got four years to win 15 games. Well, he could do that in Washington. But if he, if he is looking at it that he's maybe going to coach another year or two, maybe he goes somewhere where he thinks a team can win quickly. And of the vacancies right now, the most likely place for that would be in Los Angeles with the Chargers. The funny thing is, I don't see <laughs> it's just, you know, I don't see Belichick as a uh, as a California kind of guy. He fits right in in New England, doesn't he? The grumpy Yankee. He fits, you know, he fits right in with the New England persona. I think he would fit in in Washington. I don't see him as a California kind of guy, but if he wants to win now, that might be the place to go. The ironic place to go would be if he goes to, like, Las Vegas and takes over in Las Vegas where his former offensive coordinator got fired. Uh, But, you know, so we'll see. I mean, but he's going to coach. He's going to try to get those 15 wins and pass Don Shula. You know, and that's – I mean, look, it's kind of an ego thing, but at this point in his career, what else does he have to prove? Right? All the Super Bowl championships, all the wins that he's got, that's the only thing left. And whether he gets that 15 wins to pass Don Shula or not, he's still going to go down as one of the two or three best coaches in the history of the NFL, if not the best. 
you know, I mean, it's uh, no, you know, he doesn't need those 15 wins to validate his career. But I think being a history uh, student of the game the way that he is, I think he's going to want to get those 15 wins. So he can get them a lot quicker in Los Angeles than he can in Washington, I believe. Because when you look at it, I mean, Kansas City is uh, his big rival in the AFC West if he goes there. I mean, uh, uh, the Raiders and the Broncos and, you know, they, they've, got their, they've got some work to do. But I think that division for the Chargers, if they get some good coaching, which they haven't had in a while, and they can stay healthy and they've got Justin Herbert there, and by the way, maybe bringing in a Belichick makes Justin Herbert more likely to want to stay in Los Angeles. That makes sense. If he goes to Washington, he's got his hands full. He's got to deal with the Cowboys. He's got to deal with the Eagles. So the path to a winning record is a little bit dicier, I believe, in the NFC East than it is in the AFC West. So, uh, But again, uh, it, it, they're going to have the press conference later on today. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the decision was made because Bill refused to give up the GM duties or whether it was just, hey, let's just stop this. Robert Kraft is 82 years old. I'm sure he would like to win another Super Bowl or two on his way out before turning the team over completely to his son, Jonathan. Um... But Bill Belichick's era in, in New England is over officially. And, uh, we'll, again, we'll talk to, uh, to Dan Zampano about that coming up tomorrow a lot more. Um, there's another NFL coach that is out as of yesterday. This one was also a bit of a surprise. Maybe it shouldn't be after the last couple of seasons when the Seattle Seahawks have struggled a little bit. Uh, consecutive 9-8 and eight seasons. But Pete Carroll has been, uh, I guess, they're calling. They're not really calling it. He wasn't really fired. He's actually going to stay on with Seattle, supposedly, as some kind of an, um, an unspecified advisor. But he made it clear in his press conference, he said, that he competed pretty hard to be the coach. So whatever meetings ha- you know happened yesterday, it sounded like he wanted to stay on, and the Seahawks ownership and front office said, "Pete, look, you know, make this easy on us, make this easy on yourself. You know, let's just agree. We'll give you a job, and you'll step down, and we can then uh, move on." So it sounds like uh, like he didn't have a lot of choice in this one. Got pretty emotional in this press conference, uh, you know. And look, at the end of the day, and you know, they won a Super Bowl, right? Uh, they had a he had a great record with the Seahawks. They were 137 and 69, five NFC West titles. You know, they they won a bunch of playoff games. They uh, they won Super Bowl 48, beating the Denver Broncos. Um. But at the end of the day, when Super Bowl Forty Nine came up and Russell Wilson throws that interception at the goal line in the final seconds of the game against the Patriots, that Seahawks team after that 
was kind of never the same. They never completely uh, bounced back from that. You know, and, and whether it was, you know, I, I don't know whether it was a curse or whatever it is, but they just never reached the top of the mountain again. And so they are going to move on from him. So there's another job that has opened up. And, again, Pete Carroll, no matter what happens from here on out, you know, he is probably going to go down and, you know, I mean, 100 years from now when I'm dead, and I'm sure that right now he's the greatest coach in Seattle history. And uh, and he will go down as one of the better coaches in the NFL. Look, he won a Super Bowl. And a, and a, a record of 137 and 69 is nothing to sneeze about. And, of course, we know what he did when, you know, he was in the college ranks, had success there as well. Uh, and he's a fun dude to watch on the sideline. He is as passionate as can be. When you watch him on the sideline, you would never think he was 72 years old. Never. And by the way, if you watch some of the the there's videos uh, that are probably on YouTube, but they were on uh, Twitter and places during the year. The he throws the football. I mean, you watch him in practice. This guy can throw seeds. He's 72 years old, <laughs> and he'll go out there and he'll run around the field and you know. Uh, he, he acts like he's 32 and not 72. So uh, his enthusiasm is infectious. I've always been a fan of his. I mean, the, 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 the play decision in, the, in Super Bowl 49 was idiotic. But I have always enjoyed uh, watching Pete Carroll. You know, and, and there are people in New England that hate Pete Carroll. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the most successful tenure there. And uh, but at the end of the day, this guy can coach. And now we'll see what happens. Again, we've got to wait a couple of weeks before they can start in, you know, interviewing candidates and whether it'll be somebody from internal or not. But my guess is uh, they're going to go out and try to find it, – it won't be somebody internal. My guess is they are going to try to find a new voice. Uh, that's one of the reasons, by the way, I think if you're the Patriots, to, to go back to that, you know, Gerard Mayo has kind of been thought of as the heir apparent to Bill. I think that would be a mistake. I think this franchise at this point, if you are going to move on from Bill, you need a new voice. You need someone that will tear this thing down and I don't mean, like, get rid of all the players. I mean get rid of a lot of the assistants, bring in new voices, new ideas, and let's reboot. Because otherwise, if you're, if you're going to keep Mayo and bring him in as your, your new head coach, he's going to retain most of that coaching staff. And so then you look at it and go, okay, so what's going to change? other than a, a new GM that might give you different players. But but w does it make sense for a new voice? And I think it does. And I think Seattle is probably going to look at it the same way. So uh, so those that's the news out of the NFL. The Bel Belichick thing uh, kind of, you know, again, a not a surprise, but also a surprise. Uh, but uh, then last night, Nick Saban announcing his retirement from the University of Alabama after 17 years was a shocker. Why? When you watched what they did this season, 
when you watched his press conference after losing in the college football playoff semifinals to Michigan in overtime, a game that they could have won, when you you listened to him, this did not sound like a guy that was going, even contemplating retirement. Um, he did an interview, I think it was just last last week on a radio show, and somebody asked him about retiring, and he wasn't he wasn't having it. So what changed? I don't know. You know, I I said to my wife last night, I said, well, I hope we don't find out that there's some kind of, you know, that there's a health issue with him or not. You know, I hope not. But yeah, it was just completely shocking. Completely shocking. And his, you know, look, <laughs> he may be the greatest college coach in history. You know, we, we can argue that. I mean, but you could also argue that uh, Alabama's had the two greatest head coaches in, in uh, a tandem of head coaches in college history with Bear Bryant and Nick Saban, what the two of them did. But, I mean, he his record at Alabama is just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. You know, and after the 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 – he showed what kind of coach he is this year. Remember early in the season, they got absolutely housed by the University of Texas. Just crushed. Uh, they almost couldn't beat, was it, South South Florida almost beat them. Right? Had to, had to work their asses off to beat South Florida. And they somehow pulled off a, a, a miracle win at Auburn late in the year. That was not, you know, that was not uh, an easy year for him. And yet, from the start of the season where they looked shaky as hell to where they finished, knocking off Georgia in the SEC championship game, taking eventual national champion Michigan to overtime, and uh, might have been one of his best coaching jobs ever. And that includes the, you know, the season where, you know, they go undefeated a couple years ago. It was a 2020 season. And winning the national championship in an undefeated season before Georgia went on their run, um, it might be the best coaching job he'd ever done. But this is a guy that won seven national championships, six of them at Alabama. How do you replace that? I have no idea. I mean, you know, and this is a guy. Not only, not only did he do a great job as a coach. This is a guy that helped. Uh, create other coaches you know uh, Kirby Smart you know whose team was knocked off and had a chance to win you know if they don't get beat by Alabama they're playing in the college football playoffs and I think they win it I think they would have beaten Michigan but Kirby Smart is a product of Nick Saban as is Steve uh, Sarkeesian from Texas Lane Kiffin at Mississippi you know, and of course, don't forget, you know, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, close friends. He was on Belichick's coaching staff in Cleveland, and they remain close, you know, throughout. So uh, he finishes his college career two hundred and ninety-seven and seventy-one with one tie. Uh, and that's between Alabama, LSU, Michigan State, and Toledo. I think. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think I saw something. Like he only lost in his 17 years in Alabama. I think he lost 29 games, 26 or 29. I can't remember what it was. 
But six of those were in his first year. They went seven and six his first year in Alabama. I mean, it is remarkable what they did there. Remarkable. National championship with LSU, six with Alabama, and uh, the greatest, perhaps, to ever do it. Um, and, and, you know, it, it isn't a case that, that uh, you know, it's not just that he retired. It's now what happens. How do they replace that, right? Um, and how is that going to affect recruiting? Well, I can tell you what. They already lost a guy. Uh, young kid, the wide receiver, Ryan Williams, who by a lot of uh, uh, the well, I don't know what what you call it, but the outlets now that just you know rank prospects. It's become like a it's become an industry unto itself. But he is ranked the Williams was ranked as the number four wide receiver in the twenty twenty four class, the number twelve recruit overall in the country. This was by uh, two two forty seven sports, whatever the hell that is. I don't follow. I mean, I don't get too wrapped up in you know what how kids are rated in high school, quite frankly. Um. But he's already decommitted from the University of Alabama. And he said that the departure of Nick Saban had a lot to do with his his decision. And it may not be the last one that Alabama loses because of that. You know, I, you know, I don't uh, – and, you know, Deion Sanders – tweeted out yesterday and made some comments yesterday in an interview about how shocked he was. But he also made the point that the college football landscape has changed so much that that was part of the reason why Saban retired. And and Nick Saban has been vocal about the fact that, you know, the whole transfer portal and the, uh, the NIL agreements were a danger to college football that they were going to ruin the game. And, you know, it's basically the Wild West out there right now. You know, we've got all these uh, groups getting together trying to see how much money they can raise to bring in the best recruits and how much money can we give them, how many endorsements can we give them. And now, you know, your, your time at a school means nothing because you can basically transfer anywhere you want, as often as you want. You don't have to sit anymore the way you used to have to to make it that much more difficult. It has become, I mean, it's crazier than the NFL. Hell, NFL players don't have the freedom of movement the way they do in college football. Think about that for a minute. You know, and so Dion believes that it's, that's part of the reason why he's leaving. Um, I think that uh, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It'll be interesting when he, you know, he, he's released a statement talking about it, but when he actually gets in front of some media and talks about it at length, it will be fascinating to hear how much of that played into his decision. And at 72, I don't think he's going to make a comeback. I don't think he's going to sit at home and, and in a year or two decide he wants to coach again. You know, he's been married to his wife for 50 years. She's followed him around, and she's put up with a lot. Uh, and I saw some interviews with, with him and her together before. And uh, I think that 
I, I think now that he's made this decision, I think he's going to be comfortable with it. Because, again, you know, at this point, if you made the decision, you know, where the hell else are you going to go that's any better than Alabama? Right? And uh, so now what what does Alabama do? We'll see. Uh, one of the first names that has surfaced was the head coach at Alabama, Dan Lanning, who uh, has ties to, to uh, Alabama. You know, and he has said he has no interest in leaving Oregon. But if they call you, you know, how do you – you have to at least listen, don't you? So uh, we shall see. But, man, I'll tell you what, just a wild 12 hours. Two of the best to ever do it. Bill Belichick, Nick Saban out, and one of the other, you know, great coaches in both college and in the NFL, Pete Carroll, all within 12 hours of each other. So uh, I can't wait to talk to Dan Zampano tomorrow. That is going to be a great uh, – that's going to be a great time. It is 30 minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little college basketball and a little baseball. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 33 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call here on a Thursday morning, a busy Thursday morning thanks to uh, the coaching carousel. Um, college basketball last night. Uh, the UConn Huskies ranked fourth in the country, beat Xavier last night. It was uh, a bit of a struggle against a 500 Xavier team, but UConn wins it 80-75. to Cam Spencer with 19 points. Tristan Newton with 16. Alex Caravan, another strong game, uh, 14 points. The defending national champs uh, who lost to Xavier twice last year uh, with the victory, and they are now poised perhaps – to be the number one team in the country when the next rankings come out after the weekend, if they don't uh, trip and lose to uh, Georgetown on Sunday. Georgetown uh, trying to rebuild uh, under new coach Ed Cooley, but they've got a lot of work to do. That should be an easy UConn win. But if they win that game, they should be the number one team because – everybody else in the top five has lost. Last night, number three, Kansas loses – to Central Florida. Uh, Kansas was picked to win the Big 12. Central Florida, its first year in the Big 12, was picked to finish last. Well, last <laughs> last night, uh, Central Florida uh, wins the game, and so another top five team bites the dust. That's after yesterday, uh, or a day before yesterday, when number one Purdue lost to Nebraska. It was the first time Nebraska had beaten a number one ranked team in like 41 years or something. Nebraska's no joke. They're 13 and three this year, three and two in the Big Ten. Um, but that was a shocker beating Purdue. And then Iowa State knocked off the only undefeated team in Division One, Houston, uh, two days ago. They beat them 57 to 53. So they're falling like flies. And uh, UConn, again, as long as they don't uh, make a big mistake uh, this coming weekend. Uh, against Georgetown, they should be the number one team in the country. So uh, uh, a lot of fun in college basketball. This is when things start to get really, really interesting now when you get into the meat of the conference play starting in January and uh, through the month month of February. So uh, that'll be uh, a lot of fun to watch. UConn women beat Providence last night by a million. Uh, UConn women lose yet another player. The, The injuries that the UConn women have had to face over the last few years is just absolutely ridiculous. Now they lose Aubrey Griffin uh, to a knee ligament. She is out for the rest of the year. She's a redshirt senior. She does have another year of eligibility. She is 
probably the most athletic player on the team. Um, probably wasn't going to be a first-round pick for the WNBA anyway, so she may opt to come back. We'll see. You know, there's actually been some uh, speculation what Paige Beckers would do. Of course, she's missed two seasons with injury. She still has two more years of eligibility she could play at UConn. And with the injuries this year, it doesn't – and, you know, losing AC Fudd, it doesn't look like they are going to be in position to win a national championship this year as much as if, – if they had been healthy, they look like they were going to. Uh, but with the injuries, it doesn't look like they will. There's actually talk now that uh, Paige Beckers might come back. She has kind of alluded to the fact that she would not be against coming back to UConn for another year. And she may be the most uh, – athletic player or the best player to ever put on a UConn uniform, but the injuries have really hurt her, and you wonder if she's going to want to leave there without a national championship, whether she'd come back for one more year uh, to give it a try. If you're a UConn women's basketball fan, I'm sure you're uh, uh, you're hoping for that. Uh, so that's, that's where we are as far as college basketball goes today. Let's get to baseball, and I've spent a lot of time the last few weeks kind of on social media and kind of taking the temperature of Red Sox Nation. And let me tell you, people are hot. I mean, you know, they they are feverish. Uh, you know, if you had a fever like this and uh, you were at home, you'd be going to the doctor's office. The amount of vitriol and anger and nastiness being directed at Red Sox ownership is to a level that I have never seen. And I ha- you know, look, I'm, I, I'm, I go on to Twitter and, and, uh, and Facebook and I'm on Reddit and I, I went on actually and, and I got tired of all the, all the, oh, what have you done for me lately talk, you know? And look, there's no doubt that it's been a rough year, a rough couple of years. You know, but the problem is, speaking as the old get-off-my-lawn guy, people don't understand how difficult it is to win. People don't understand. Red Sox, quote-unquote, fans, that's what they want to call themselves, don't understand what it was like for people of my age and even younger really wondered if we would ever see a World Series title in our lifetime. Hell, I was damn near in my mid-40s before I saw one. Right? I mean, people live their entire lives rooting for the Boston Red Sox and never seeing a title. We've had four in this century. We've had four in, what, 20 years We've won four of them. Well, Jesus, how about a little, like, perspective and say, geez, that's awesome. You can't win every year. The Patriots didn't win every year when they had their dynasty going, when they had Tom Brady. They're just, it. things don't happen that way. It's just not the way it works because everybody else is trying just as hard as you are. And... You know, if Chris Sale doesn't spend a good part of the last, 
a uh, few years injured and is in a, a regular part of their rotation, and he's the Chris Sale that they got when they first got him and that they expected to have during the life of that contract. If that's the Chris Sale we had, maybe this is a different conversation. Maybe they win another title or two. But, the, you know, look, I think the frustration is is that last year was probably as bad as it's been for a while. And, yeah, I get it. They've won titles, but they've also finished last a bunch of times. It's like feast or famine. And, and people, you know, you finish last, people lose their minds. Let's also remember that that division is probably the best one in baseball. That's, I mean, that is just, there is no, there are no bums in that, in that division. I mean, the Orioles were the laughing stock for a while. Look how good they are now. You know, how about a little perspective? And, you know, I think some of this is people still hurting over the Mookie Betts trade, over the, uh, you know, letting Xander Bogarts walk and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, now you, you're not getting all the big free agents. And, you know, it used to be that, hey, we would just open a checkbook and everybody would want to come play in Boston. Now the Red Sox, even if they are opening up their wallets, and we don't know the extent uh, to what they have offered people. You know, they lost out on Yamamoto. They lost out on uh, – they just lost out on uh, Shoti Imanaga, who just signed with the Chicago Cubs four years, $53 million. And that deal could with the uh, – there's a club option that could make it five years and 80. For a 30-year-old pitcher, by the way, who has never pitched in Major League Baseball. Okay? But even if you say the Red Sox offered him that or more, and there's some talk out there that they offered – uh, more guaranteed money than Chicago did. He still chose Chicago. So people are reading the tea leaves and saying, ah, nobody wants to play in Boston. Well, I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. Alex Cora is a very highly respected manager. There's a lot of guys that would love to play for a guy like Alex Cora. You know, and, and then there's talk that the Red Sox ownership is cheap. Ah, they don't spend any money. What? Because they don't spend $360 million like the Mets did last year? They're not playing, throwing around Monopoly money the way that the Los Angeles Dodgers did? When you look at what the Red Sox have done, and, and Alex Spear had a great article the other day in the Boston Globe talking about the Red Sox spending pattern. Right now, the Red Sox have... Uh, $197 million in commitments. So they have about $40 million to play with before they get to that uh, threshold for the luxury tax. Free agency is not over. Okay, they didn't get the big names. It was, over, it was a foregone conclusion that Shohei Otani was going to the Dodgers. Yamamoto has said he wanted to go to the Dodgers, whether Otani was there or not. That was where he wanted to be. They lose Imanaga to, to Chicago. Okay, so be it. But, you know, there's Blake Snell's still out there. Jordan Montgomery is still out there. Marcus Stroman is still out there. You know, there's still a few guys out there that can be a difference maker. People are like, you know, they signed Lucas Giolito. had a rough year last year. People were underwhelmed by that. I, I, I get it. But Lucas Giolito, if you look at his history, his numbers are a hell of a lot better than they were last year. And he was going through a divorce last year, and he pitched for three teams. So, you know, he had a lot of things happening in his life. I think that played into his poor performance last year. I expect a bounce back year. But anyway, so they're already at $200 million, all right? 
Last year, they they were at two hundred and twenty-five million dollars, which was seven million behind, below the the uh, the luxury tax threshold of two hundred and thirty-three. Since two thousand seven, they've been over the luxury tax threshold eight times, under it nine times. And thirteen of the last seventeen years, they finished within eight percent. And usually, in in, in uh, nine of those, they've been within four percent. Well. Look, that's about where they are or where they will be, and that's where they were last year. It's not that this team is not spending money. But when you have a guy like Steve Cohen in New York and you have, you know, being just stupid with his money, stupid, and look what it, well, look what it got him, nothing. It got him absolutely nothing. It got him tearing down his team uh, before the year was over. And now scaling things back this year because he realized it didn't work. You have the Dodgers spending ridiculous money. But not everybody's going to be reckless with their money. The San Diego Padres, a couple of times in the last 10 years, have opened up the purse strings and spent a ton of money, and it's gotten them nothing to the point where look what they're doing. They're tearing things down. Juan Soto's out of town. Blake Snell is on his way out as a free agent. It it doesn't, you know, spending all that money doesn't translate necessarily into championships. So why the vitriol? I mean, I know some of it is probably because the, the stupid comment that was made prior to the year about we're going full throttle. Well, again, free agency is not over. And the Red Sox have a great young core. When you look at the guys like they brought up last year, like Abreu and Rafaela, and you look at what Tristan Casas did the second half of the season, look how Jaron Duran finally blossomed. Look at the way Trevor Story played shortstop the second half of the season. Yeah, I know his bat was down. I get that. But he was an above-average shortstop after he got that elbow fixed he was an above average shortstop last year fielding wise you know when you look at some of those things they have pieces Connor Wong is one of the better defensive catchers in baseball he's got a great arm there are pieces there and they've added a guy like Tyler O'Neill, who could be a great complimentary piece, fill out that uh, Adam Duval role. And Tyler O'Neill, by the way, is a better fielder. But you look at the pieces that the Red Sox have in place, they've got Kenley Jansen as a closer. Well, maybe they won't by the end of the year. They may have to move some salary uh, to stay around the luxury tax threshold to sign a pitcher or two. But they've got other guys that can fill that role. There are pieces there. The Red Sox are not going to be a disaster this year if they stay healthy, and that's the qualifier for everything. I don't understand the anger. You can't sign everybody. You know, people are killing them for not signing Teoscar Hernandez to this, you know, ridiculous contract. Uh, you know, there's talk that they're interested in Jorge Soler. You know, 
and maybe it's the full throttle thing. Maybe it's the firing Heim Bloom thing. People expected everything to happen all at once. Give Craig Breslow a chance, for God's sake. You know, uh, I think when push comes to shove, making the trade with Chris Sale, who's been injured for most of the last three or four years, and getting the young kid in, in Vaughn Grisham, is going to be, at the end of the day, a great move for the Red Sox. I believe that. And I believe that Craig Bressel knows what he's doing. He's a smart dude. And I believe, by the way, and we, we talked about this a little bit when it happened, but I believe the hiring of Andrew Bailey as their pitching coach is going to make a significant difference. Look what he did with that pitching staff in San Francisco. Andrew Bailey is going to make this pitching staff better. I believe that Dave Bush was part of the problem. I felt that all along. So I don't get it. But the vitriol is such that with the uh, Red Sox winter weekend coming up next weekend on the 19th and 20th, there's not going to be a town hall. John Henry is not going to be standing up there and taking the crap that he did last year. You know, look, people just need to calm the hell down. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And no one is going to convince me that the Red Sox ownership doesn't care, that the Red Sox ownership is cheap, yada, yada. Try, again, be a fan of Pittsburgh. Be a fan of Oakland. Be a fan of Tampa. And I know Tampa wins with not spending any money, but don't you think the Tampa fans would love to be in the mix for some of these big-time free agents? You know, the Red Sox are not a penny-pinching organization. When you're spending well over $200 million on payroll every year, are you and you are in the top five, six, seven in payroll. They are not cheap. I don't, ca- don't want to hear that anymore. And people say, well, you know, they own a soccer team, and they own this, and they own that, and they're getting involved in golf. And, hey, it's their money. They can do whatever the hell they want, but they certainly have not been cheap. Period. Stop. Just irritates the ever-living crap out of me. It's 50 minutes past the hour. We've got to take a break after my rant. Back in a minute, you're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 52 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. Just got a couple of minutes left before we get out of here. Um, again, Dan Zampano will be coming up with us tomorrow to talk NFL football. A couple other baseball notes. Interesting signing. Uh, the Miami Marlins signed Rachel Balkovic as their director of player development. Uh, she has spent the last two years as the manager uh, of the Class A Tampa team in the Yankee system. Um, she was the first woman, obviously, to ever manage a uh, Major League Baseball affiliate uh, she's also the first woman to serve as a uh, full-time minor league strength coach. Um, you know, college catcher, knows the game. Uh, she was a uh, minor league hitting coach for the Yankees in 2019. And now the Marlins, who had their first female general manager, in, uh, Kim Ang, who obviously uh, left at the end of the year. Um, but now they are going to have their first female or the Major League Baseball's first female director of uh, player development. So good for her. That's pretty cool. 
Um, Hein Bloom, we talked about him. He's still around. He was just hired as uh, an, an advisor uh, to John Mozalak, the uh, president of baseball operations with the St. Louis Cardinals. Of course, uh, Bloom is 15 years with Tampa and uh, then uh, four years with the Red Sox, and uh, it did not end well. Uh, but again, Hein Bloom's a smart dude. Now, he's another Yale guy, just like Craig Breslow. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that hurt Heimblum being the head guy, because in Tampa he wasn't the head guy, I think the thing that hurt Heimblum uh, in Boston was his inability to make a decision. From everything that I have heard, it wasn't that the guy wasn't smart. It was that, if anything, he was too thoughtful, that he overthought things and which caused them to not pull the trigger on some deals they could have pulled and that maybe that was his biggest quote-unquote flaw. Uh, so, uh, But anyway, he's uh, now with the St. Louis Cardinals in the front office. Uh, today is the deadline for Major League Baseball players and their agents to submit uh, figures for arbitration with and, and the teams as well. Uh, four players reached the deals yesterday. Cal Quantrill with uh, Colorado, Chris Bubich with Kansas City, um, and then uh, JT Brubaker, Husker, you know. But there are 194 players that are going to uh, submit their numbers today. It should be interesting. Juan Soto, one of them, along with Vlad Jr., Pete Alonso, all looking to see what they can get in arbitration. The uh, largest one-year deal for an arbitration player uh, was back in uh, to what October of 2022. Uh, he got 30 million bucks with the Angels. So <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's possible, I guess. Juan Soto, Vlad Jr., Pete Alonso, could they approach that? Maybe. I don't know. So we'll see. But there's some big names uh, that are going to be submitting those figures today, including Anthony Santander from Baltimore, uh, Kyle Tucker from Houston, Christian uh, Walker. Uh, the slugger from Arizona. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch uh, those numbers as they come in and uh, and see what happens with that. Uh, Wander Franco, we mentioned his debacle down in uh, the Dominican Republic. I guess for Wander Franco, the good news is is that the original charges that uh, he was faced with, the commercial and sexual exploitation, money laundering, which could have gotten him uh, uh, 30 years in jail, have been reduced. He's now uh, just charged with a... Um, a le- it's a lesser charge. I can't remember exactly what it is, but uh, the worst that he could face now is five years in jail if he's convicted. Um, still, at the end of the day, if what is said to have happened, having a relationship with a 14-year-old girl uh, and paying off the mom uh, is the deal, is happened, it's just disgusting. And he's never playing in Major League Baseball again. I see no way. I don't care. Even if he is found not guilty in court, if the, if it is true that he had a relationship with a 14-year-old girl, there is no way in hell he ever plays in Major League Baseball. Jesus, I mean, Trevor Bauer wasn't even uh, convicted of anything. And you would think he was the biggest pariah in baseball. To be fair, I mean, to be sure, what he did, if, if what he did is true, uh, it's not good. But he didn't do anything that was technically illegal. 
Juan DeFranco did. So I don't think, I mean, good for him, I guess, that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lesser charge now. But I don't see any way he ever returns to Major League Baseball. I, I just, I can't, I can't even imagine that. Uh, Celtics win last night. They beat the best team in the West, the Minnesota Timberwolves, in overtime. Uh, the Celtics are now a perfect 18-0 and at home. It is the first time in franchise history they have ever started the season 18-0. and that is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with Dan Zampano here on the Wake Up Call. We leave you this morning with some music from Rod Stewart. We were going to play this yesterday before the emergency. Uh, Rod Stewart turned 79 years old today. So here's a little Tonight's the Night on the way out. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country.